Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Hillary Link. Hillary, how are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks, Josh. Glad to have you here. And I'm curious about a couple things. The main one is how things went since last time. And also, since NYU has asked me to teach again in the spring, thinking more about engaging with universities and leadership. And I'm curious if we get the chance, or if you want to talk about it first, we can, to talk about leadership and what the role is, the actions of, of the leader. You know, is it, it's different than the average student or a professor at a university or of any organization. And actually, I say leader. The person with authority isn't always a leader, and a person who leads isn't always with authority. So true. Yeah. But I propose we start by talking about your experience. Last time, I asked you what the environment meant to you, and you described some of that, and then you committed to something. Can you remind us what you, I mean, you're talking about lakes and the rural areas, and then can you, can you remind us of that and then what you committed to? Absolutely. And actually, there's a funny story around it. So part of what I was telling you about last time we spoke was how growing up, I felt so much more connected to the natural environment. You know, my sister and I would walk everywhere or we would cross country ski or we would ice skate on a frozen pond that was right across the street from the house that I grew up in. And at the time, which was the 70s, nobody actually paid much attention. And so we just kind of spent our time outdoors. And how much harder that has become to do. I just really grew up feeling much more connected to the natural environment. I grew up in a kind of a mix between it was very like exurban. It was beyond suburbs into rural. And how then I lived much of my lives in big of my life in bigger cities. And now I live back in a rural area. But a lot of what I think about when I think about growing up is my sister who's two years older than I am and I just taking off and traipsing through the woods or cross-country skiing off on our own for hours and hours, getting lost in the woods, finding our way, or ice skating on the frozen pond uh, behind our neighbor's house across the street from where we grew up. And how, you know, life takes you in different directions. And both when I was living in a city, but also being here and being very busy working mother of three children who, even though they have some more exposure to the natural environment, it does feel like life has changed so much and we've become so dependent on technology and cars and the more comforts, I would say, than even I grew up with 40, 50 years ago. And so I had committed, when you and I spoke about a month ago, I committed to two things. Uh, One was to really make a concerted effort to, where possible, embrace the natural environment, to rely less on driving to places, and, you know, to think about those days spent ice skating on the frozen pond. The funny story that I was going to tell you is that my 10-year-old has taken up ice skating with great passion. And he, in addition to doing some group lessons at our local recreation center, is also doing some private lessons with a lovely local woman on Sunday late afternoons. And 
kind of in the spirit of the promise that I made to you, and also because I've always loved ice skating because I grew up doing it, I decided that I was also going to take private ice skating lessons. So he and I would split a half hour and he would do the first half hour and I would do the second. Well, on my very first lesson, and I'm a decent ice skater, I can do crossovers and I learned how to do mini jumps, but I've never known how to do a spin. And so I said to this young woman coach, I really want to learn how to do a one foot spin. I've always dreamed of it. If I show you what my spin looks like, could you tell me what I'm doing wrong? And I'm sure you can predict how this went, or maybe (laughs) even not. I went to do a spin. I fell so hard and whacked my head. The entire ice skating arena kind of reverberated. (laughs) And my 10-year-old came running over hysterical. Long story short, I'm fine. However, I still have a bit of an egg on my head. And needless to say, it was a sobering (laughs) reminder that I was a much more fluid ice skater when I was seven and eight and 10 than I am at the ripe old age of 52. And I now I have continued to take the lessons because I figured, well, you got to get back up on the horse. But now I wear a helmet. And so it is both mortifying and also just an embracing of where where I'm at in my life. So that was my funny, embarrassing story that I've now told you. But that was one thing that I had promised you. The other thing I had promised to myself and to you and in general was to, again, be much more intentional about not eating processed meats and meat in a way that, again, contributes to in producing those, contributes to greenhouse gases, et cetera. And I will say that that one has been much more successful. No pain? No reverberating pain? Oh, no. I definitely didn't smack my head. in giving up meat to to a large extent no it's actually been you know it's funny it's made me intentional about choices that i was already beginning to think about even if i was not always making them and so on one level it's actually been a relief of sorts to say I'm going to really devote myself to this and think about it. As I was saying, starting to say before, it's complicated in a house of men mostly, and not that it matters, not that men can't be and young boys can't be vegetarian, let's say, or eliminate sources of meat. But I'm raising three growing boys who are age 10, 15, and 18. And so the challenge more than anything has been finding uh, protein-filled things that they as young boys will actually consume. Uh, My husband and I, I think, and I would say my husband's 
ahead of me in terms of the choices that he's making. And that has probably made it simpler for me. But I think we both are committed to this as a lifestyle. And I would say I've probably gotten there 85-ish percent. I've had a few weak moments when my boys are eating a hamburger, for example, or something like that. But I think that has proven to be an easier change because, as I said, I think naturally I was already leaning in that direction. So many things that this makes me think of. I, I have to share an embarrassing story myself of... Mine was. Uh, it's, o- it's only fair if you do as well. <laughs> Mine was snowboarding. Uh, I'd been skiing for a while and I took a snowboarding lesson of, of an hour or two. It was a group lesson. You know, I was doing pretty well at the beginning and then you get tired at the end of the day and I was getting fatigued. And at one point I just planted and I just really caught an edge and fell. And it was like, oh, it's towards the end of the day. The sun isn't quite setting, but it's kind of low. That's it. I'm not going anymore. And then, so I'm lying there in pain. And the cute girl comes by from this lesson. She goes, want to go again? And I'm like, of course. <laughs> that time, oh my God, did I hit, did I fall? And the first time, oh. the first one was I fell forward, but the last one was I fell back and landed on my head. I mean, I had a helmet, but boy, did that hurt. I was, that was Yeah, just... it, it turns out one, one has a different sense of balance, I think. As an adult, I don't know what it is, but yeah, it's good to know you're Know your boundaries. As one of my college roommates to whom I told the story wrote me back, she said, check your inner Michelle Kwan at the door and wear a helmet, will you? (laughs) I was like, I laughed so hard because I thought I've secretly always dreamed of being the ice princess, but I think I have to accept that it's just not in the cards for me. Now, your story about taking the lessons with your son reminded me of, I mean, he's a friend now, but we've worked together. He's in New York. So when we've met to talk business, I do this with a lot of people, actually. I, I invite him to meet me in Washington Square Park, and we walk around picking up litter together while we have a business meeting. And a couple of weeks later, he tells me how he sees his daughter picking up litter. And he says, oh, that's neat that you're picking up litter. I'm, I'm glad you're doing it. How'd you happen to do that? And she says, because you do, daddy. And he does <laughs> because we do, because you know, we were not together. And it was such a heartwarming thing for me to hear because he was like glowing at this. And a lot of people say, why, why bother? You know, you pick up the litter within five minutes, it's back the way it was. But something like this is so hard because I know that if it's affecting, you know, it's what do you call it? It's two degrees of separation. It's, it's affecting someone. And also people who know me, I can't stand when I hear an old person saying, I'm so glad that the next generation is fixing the problems that we started. Because when I hear that, I hear someone abdicating responsibility because old people, we own stocks and we vote and we hold board seats. We should be running circles around the next generation about actually doing things. And so this was a case where an old person, I think he's younger than me, but still old enough. And his daughter, he was leading a young person. That's the direction I think we old people should be way ahead in acting. Well, I think it's actually your your comment makes me think, and I don't want to forget the part that I promised you that was not as successful. So I'm going to circle back to that. And it wasn't not successful merely because I fell on my uh, backside and head, but there are other reasons why it's not successful that I'll, I'll get to in a moment. But to your point, 
you said something to me at the beginning about uh, because you're going to be teaching a course at NYU in the spring and you're thinking about the role of a leader or a person who has authority and kind of what that looks like. And your story about your friend's daughter, I think really gets at it, which is that I think we all have to realize that to, to differing degrees, we are all a model at all times and being watched by someone. Now, the interesting thing about being the president of a small college in a very small rural area in Northwest Pennsylvania, uh, and I will say that's been a brand new experience for me because as you and I had spoken about before, I had spent pretty much the vast majority of my entire adult life living in large cities, New York City and Rome, Italy, where your sense of anonymity, even as an authority figure or leader is much greater. And there's pretty much no sense of anonymity when you're the president of a college that is one of the major uh, institutions in this small town. And so the reason I bring that up is that I've become very aware in the two and a half years since I've been here that everyone's watching pretty much everything I'm doing. Everyone seems to know everything in this town in a very charming way, but people are watching and, um, you know, funny comments people make of, oh, I saw you here, I saw you there, et cetera. But it's been a really good reminder for me that what I say and what I do more importantly matters because people are paying attention. But even as you, in the the anecdote that you shared about your friend and and his child, I see that with my kids. They they don't always love to see, you know, they don't always appear grateful or appreciative when they see their mother or father doing something. But then periodically later on, you see them repeat an action or somehow imitate it or incorporate something you might have said that at the time they may or may not have rolled their eyes about. But I do think it's a really important lesson that, again, we look at other people as models. People look at us as models. And whether that's because you're a public figure or because you're giving a very public set of remarks or because you just happen to be walking around Washington Square Park, people notice. And I think that's a really, to me, that is a lot of what being an authority figure or leader, whether it's in the realm of sustainability or racial justice or so many other issues, political issues, et cetera, intellectual issues is, you know, I think who you are and how you how you go through your day matters because somebody is looking to you and trying to kind of read what you're doing or use that as a model. I'm going to also say that there's a lot of role models doing the opposite. And one of the major driving forces of this podcast and, and all of my sustainability work is I think I bet anyone listening to this 
if I said, can you think of a company that has made big sustainability commitments and the leader, him or herself, is not living by the values that the company or the organization or the institution is? I mean, how many private jets flew into COP26? Mm-hmm. And there was, I don't know if you saw when the CEO of Shell was on a TEDx panel. And no. Yeah, it, it, was, it got kind of famous, famous because there was uh, him, there was an activist investor who was critical in getting the four board seats on the Exxon, on Exxon's board, and then a young woman who was a, um, a climate activist. Mm. And the climate activist, when it was her turn to speak, she said, I cannot be on the stage with you. I'm leaving in tears. And the, the Shell guy said, look, I get it. The first thing I want to say is, I get it. I understand the issues. And then he proceeds to say how everyone else doesn't get it. He was saying, you know, we have to keep doing what we're doing. And I think he would have been more effective if he had said, I, we're trying to get it. We don't get it. Mm. Or can you help us? Or showing vulnerability. But I don't think anyone looked at him and thought, this guy's probably living sustainably himself. And I think a lot of people who aren't sustainable, who themselves aren't sustainable, can say, can say well, look, no one else is. So what, what I do doesn't matter. Right. And I believe that something missing from all of this is that people can live sustainably or at least a lot more sustainably than they are and really enjoy it. And if it comes from intrinsic motivation, as opposed to obligation, extrinsic, you know, guilt and shame. And if you don't do this, then we're all going to die, something like that. And so I think that I, one of the reasons I bring people like you on is you're a leader of an organization. And I think that, I think it helps for people to see, you know, you have your childhood experiences and I remember when you told me about them last time, I was thinking about being in Wisconsin and, you know, my childhood stuff and my sledding hill. And I think everybody is going to hear that. Even if they didn't grow up, even if they grew up in the tropics, they're still going to connect with something. And I think when someone, when we get that we acting, that we, we each have these personal connections with nature. And yes, of course we care that we're maybe not going to hit two degrees and we're going to go to get to three degrees and, and, you know, a hundred million people in Bangladesh are going to be displaced from their homes. But if we're not from Bangladesh, that's fairly abstract. Mm. And yet we all have these very personal things. And I think leading from intrinsic where the person actually is, I think people will get people acting more. If, if we really want people acting on Bangladesh, I think starting with the lake across, in your case, the lake across the street where you grew up is going to get you, well, you've already been acting, but you know, get you acting even more, mm-hmm. more joyfully. The emotion, I think, is, is what I'm focusing on. Well, and so, you know, it's, it's so interesting because as I said, the less successful of my two promises was actually to kind of try to get back to that place of embracing the natural environment, again, leaving the ice skating out of it. But, but here's what's so interesting for me. And again, as a child, this would never cross my mind because I didn't, you know, I got on the school bus. I didn't think about where I needed to drive to, what groceries needed to be purchased, right, for my family. And in many ways, though, the rural nature of the place I grew up is not dissimilar from where I live now. And what was been what was so interesting for me over the last month is to say there are so many instances during my week where I can't not drive a car. 
And you'll appreciate this as a New Yorker. You know, I lived for many, many, many years in New York City without ever owning a car or needing a car. And then in Rome, we had a car, but avoided using it to the extent possible because frankly, there was never anywhere to park. But now that I live here, it's almost impossible to live your life without your own vehicle frequently because the public transport that I think, frankly, I got quite spoiled by having both in New York City and in Rome simply doesn't exist. Well, I would also suggest that at one time people lived there. I mean, the car was invented not that long ago and Allegheny probably, the community probably goes back before there. So at some point, Mm -hmm. I would guess that the development began to develop around the, the car so that things got that distance apart where driving was necessary. And if we weren't driving so much, it, yeah, of course it would take time, but we would, I mean, we, we can't keep driving so much, even if all the cars are electric, there's still a lot of embedded pollution in these things. Mm-hmm. And once we start building for cars, people adjust. If we start building not for cars, people adjust. It may take some time. And a lot of people, there's this refrain of like, well, we don't have time for that. Okay. The best time was 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's like planting a tree. The best time was always 20 years ago. And the second best time is now. And they didn't do it then. Well, 20 years from now, they'll say they should have done it 20 years now. Right. And here in New York, a lot of people press for more bike lanes. And I'm all for bike lanes, but I think more valuable than more bike lanes is fewer car lanes. Mm. And a lot easier and cheaper. I mean, just close it. I mean, there's a lot of streets that could be closed. There's a lot of highways. I mean, I think a lot of people would be happy if the Cross Bronx Expressway were filled in and just turned to park. Having spent many hours stuck in part in traffic on that, I can imagine. No, I think you're absolutely right. One of the funny things people know about me is I tend to get these big ideas and I get fixated on them. And I will tell you that one of the first things I got fixated on here, which was not my idea, but I happened to be reading in a Pittsburgh quarterly magazine when I had come for one of my, it wasn't an interview, but it was before I had officially begun as president. And I was making a couple trips back and forth. And I was reading, it was kind of the, the big question they had posed to local leaders was, what's the next big thing for Pittsburgh? And several other college presidents along what we call the I-79 corridor, which is basically the highway that runs from Pittsburgh, what goes south of Pittsburgh, but for my purposes, from Pittsburgh to Erie North. And Meadville, Pennsylvania, where I live, is one of probably about six or seven at least colleges that is along the I-79 corridor. And if you count Pittsburgh and Erie, there are probably 10 or 12 at least. So it's a very dense populated area by small colleges. And several of the presidents had said in their what's next for the region, how great it would be to have a light rail system that went between Pittsburgh and Erie. So I became obsessed with that. And I talked about it when I got here for months and months and months, but I kept saying, 
I kind of have another big job, which is to run the college. And I don't know how one even goes about setting something like that in motion. And I've spoken to I've spoken to our U.S. senators. I've spoken to state representatives, state senators. There are all kinds of complex issues because you run through many, many counties by doing that. But this experiment got me thinking a lot more about it because just in the last month since you and I spoke, I've had to go back and forth to Pittsburgh, which is about 80 miles, probably four or five times. And every time I get in my car to do it, I think, gosh, if we had an environmentally focused light rail system, this would be a dream. And yet we're not quite there. And someone actually just told me about a, I guess it's an entrepreneur who's trying to take train tracks that are not necessarily being used commercially or for personal travel and to actually put trolley cars on them that might be sustainable. They're not quite fast speed light rail, but it's a start. And so I've actually been thinking about this all over again, based on my attempt over the last month to use my car less. If that means that this show has helped prompt that thought and engage you more in alternative transportation besides cars, then I'm heartwarmed again. Well, and, and, but, and I think you're right. I think, I think to your point, many small communities kind of built up around right distant the distance cars could could easily travel but it has really gotten me thinking a lot about public and shared transportation and how there really is such a divide between big cities and even some smaller cities that have good public transportation and so many communities where, you know, we have a, a shuttle bus that kind of runs around town and there's pretty much a once a day Greyhound bus that could take you from the bus station in Pittsburgh. But our students struggle without having their own car here. And yet we're not an institution that wants to encourage that. So, you know, we're working against many forces, but yes, to your point, you should feel encouraged or inspired because it has really caused me to double down on my thinking on this and trying to restart the conversations about, yes, it might take 10 years or 20 years to get that, but Better to start now than never. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Another big effect that I, I believe happens when we act, a lot of people 
say individual action doesn't matter because if you add up the contributions of one person, divide by 7.9 billion, suddenly you're back to negligible. And so what's the point? All we can do is vote or hope that institutions will act, but that's not the main result of individual action. There's a couple. One of them is what you're talking about, is it changes our perspective. It's very difficult to influence someone else to do something that you yourself are doing the opposite of or not engaged on yourself. Mm -hmm. We learn, we see the world differently. And then the second effect is the effect we have on others, especially if we have skills, the, the emotional and social skills of leadership, because then we can greatly multiply our effect. And to look at just what one person does is, and that effect is, is missing by far bigger effects of, of it changes that person's world. And then they change people around them, which is partly why I focus on people who are at leverage points of systems or organizations, because then the effect is even yet greater. And by focusing on this intrinsic motivation, I find that it tends to be a rewarding experience for people. People like it instead of feeling like I have to do this. I have to go with my, like you, you're probably not feeling like I have to go with my son to ice skating. You probably feel something more like I get to, even with the head injury. (laughs) (laughs) Even with a big bump on my head. But, you know, and and actually your last comments, you stepped right into kind of my sweet spot of how I approach a lot of the work that I do, both as president of Allegheny College, but also kind of my approach to life, which is, you know, you talked about doing things like that helps change your perspective. So I can't remember how much of this we talked about, but I'm uh, by training a scholar of the Italian Renaissance and specifically of treatises, so artistic treatises from the Italian Renaissance. And Filippo Brunelleschi, who was the architect who designed the Duomo in Florence, and also Leon Battista Alberti, who was really a, a scholar, a writer, he was an architect, but he wrote treatises on a number of things, on the family, on architecture, but his most famous one is on painting. And really what he was trying to do was explain the system for creating a sense of depth and linear perspective in painting that Brunelleschi had come up with. But there's a passage in his treatise that I talk about all the time, and it really resonates with what you just said. He's talking about it in very painterly tones about if you change the plane where you're, so if you change where you're standing, what your eye sees is a different view of the painting, right? So I've always extrapolated from that and really use that as kind of a metaphor for why I think institutions like Allegheny College are important, right? Because what do we do? We teach students, we broaden their minds, especially a place like this that really focuses on interdisciplinarity. So we kind of teach them to stand in different places and see the world from very different points of view. And so I love that you kind of landed on that because to me, that's what teaching, it's when, as you're about to write, teach another class at NYU, to me, it's about getting someone to change where they stand. And especially in this moment 
of kind of political divide, right? And we're also entrenched in what we believe is right. That being humble enough to kind of change your perspective, even if you don't have great success. As I said, I mean, my track record on that, not using the car, embracing nature wasn't as good as I would have hoped, but it's about changing your perspective to your point. And I just think that's really important. And also, you know, to go back to your point about Bangladesh, right? Yes, it can feel abstract, But when you think about the world as global and interconnected, what you realize is that one small action has ripple effects, right? Or reverberates. And so if you can shift your perspective from just saying, this is just about me to, yes, I'm doing this because I'm enjoying doing it. I'm enjoying actually eating a lot of grains and beans and quinoa and things like that, right? But there's something about, I also recognize that it's not just affecting me, Hillary, that it does have those ripple effects, whether it's my son who's going to learn to ice skate or pick up garbage or whether it's someone across the globe in Bangladesh or somewhere that, you know, we're not, none of us is an island. And so you have to shift your perspective to also see that your own approach and your own actions have an impact on other people. Since you're a part, or Allegheny is a part of several schools, and I think you said you were the second school to become, uh, to be certified. So we were the first school in Pennsylvania and the eighth in the country to become carbon neutral. And are you interacting, are the ripples that you're talking about reaching other heads of universities yet from specifically about what you're doing for this podcast? Oh, well, in the, (laughs) my, what I have specifically done, no, although that's a really interesting question. You know, one thing we actually put out a press release probably about a year ago where we did a call to action, basically to say Allegheny has reached carbon neutrality. Uh, We're really proud of the fact that we did that. And that was both a long time coming, but actually something that because we committed to it and had consistent leadership from the board on down to all of our students really invested in this, it was doable in a relatively short period of time, you know, from 2007, when my predecessor's predecessor signed a president's climate agreement to 2020, we managed to achieve that. But we also did it without a huge endowment, without a huge operating budget. So what we did was put out a call to action to say, here's what we've done. And we're not saying everybody has to follow that same path, but we really hope others will follow these seven points of action. And it was everything from joining some consortia and organizations like Second Nature that we're an active part in. It was about kind of rethinking policies and, you know, looking at ESG investing or whatever you may want to think about as sustainable investing to the extent that your institution is able, because not every institution can. And also just taking a broader approach and really thinking about sustainability and climate action, not just as an issue of 
climate, but that there are issues of poverty and environmental justice and community resilience and global health, asthma issues, et cetera, all intertwined. So those are just a few of the points that we put out. And we do, you know, I think we try to hold ourselves up as an attainable model and a replicable model because we didn't do it with a ton of money, et cetera. But your point about kind of this individual action, putting that out as a call to others, I hadn't really thought of it that way because, again, I had been focusing on shifting my own perspective. I wonder if I leave in, how do I put it, an open invitation if it does come up that if you put out an individual call to action or if you think any of them might want to be on this podcast to go through their personal experience especially the the more intransigent ones where the biggest where the bigger delta is possible. I will take you up on that and start spreading the word. Now, while you were saying the part about Italy and I wanted to comment on how meaningful that was for me to hear and I I can't comment on it to improve on what you said, but I want to reinforce thank you for sharing that. And I'm going to jump then if that's okay with you to when you talked about raising your boys have you seen the movie The Game Changers or have you heard of it? I have not seen it. It may be useful for you. It was, it's a movie about athletes who are vegetarian and vegan. I think vegan mainly. And so there's football players and there's weightlifters and there's Arnold Schwarzenegger and people like that. It may be a useful resource for you. It's a major release. I mean, a full theater release. And I don't know where, I'm sure it's available in the usual places. I will definitely look at that. There's also B. Johnson, who not on food, but she is, I read her book and she's been on this podcast. Her book is called, I think, Zero Waste Living or The Zero Waste Life. She's, the New York Times called her, I think, the queen of zero waste, something like that. Hmm. And she's been always a role model for me because her and her family of four, none of which were on board when she started, all of them as four people produce less garbage than I do. And I take two years to fill up a load. They, four people is less than me. And a lot of people say, oh, it's difficult with families. Although with food, I think when I buy for one, it's, there's a challenge because I can't get the variety that I can if I were buying for multiple people. And I got to wash all my own dishes and cook everything. So there are certain advantages to having multiple people. Mm-hmm. But B. Johnson's stuff, uh, she's got a couple of TEDx talks in the book. And that might be, I'm not a mother with a husband and kids, and it might be a resource for you, but it might not be. I don't know. It's not, I'm not coming from experience on that one. No, I love the suggestions. I will definitely check out both of those. You know, just very quickly on the Italy piece, it's really interesting. And I know we talked a little bit about this last time, you know, sort of the zero kilometer uh, eating and living that many Italians just, that's just, it's not something they've embraced, right? As a, as an approach or a trend, it's just who they are. It's how they've always lived. But a lot of Italian cooking too, when you look at it, and it's maybe one of the things that I love about being there is that there really is a greater sense of trying to avoid waste. So you find very, I mean, some of the most delicious dishes are all about 
reusing, I don't know, everything from stale bread to parts of animals that you normally wouldn't use, right? Or things like that. And I think that has really expanded my approach of it doesn't have to be all fresh, new, exciting ingredients to be, you know, some of the most delicious food I've ever eaten is because that's what those are long time historic recipes. And that's what was kind of to use up what was left over. And so I do think there's a piece of me that, you know, having lived so many chunks of my life in that environment has just embraced it. It's harder. It's definitely harder to do here in some ways. You know, we use many more processed ingredients. We use more kind of processed items, but You know, and sometimes when you're here, it's just easy to do what's easy to do in the space that you are. But I do think about that a lot. Now it's going to be hard for me to hold back. I'll say a little bit because food is so, that's another thing that happens when people act, especially people connect on, there's certain things that people, I think we'd love to connect on. The enjoying nature, as you talked about with the skating and skiing and food is another big one. Because as you're talking about that, I'm looking over at I'm fermenting. I don't know if I told you how I unplugged my fridge for months on end at a time. The first time I did, I was just curious if I could, what happened? And I had to force myself to ferment as the stuff in the freezer started thawing. Mm. So now I got a couple things of vinegar over there, some chutney, some kvass, which I you know learned about. And it's the conversation beforehand. A lot of people will say things like, well, if you individually wrap cucumbers, then they can they stay fresher longer. And look in Africa, it's very useful for them because then they can keep the food fresh longer. An individual cucumber, when wrapped in plastic, will stay fresher longer. But the systemic effect is that once they know that that can happen, they start shipping them from farther away so that they arrive to you at the same level of unfreshness. But hmm. the supply chain has grown. And now we have, I was reading this story about a package of apple slices. So the apples came from one country the package came from another. Both were shipped to a third country where they were put together and then shipped to the United States to eat. So for something that we used to walk out and pick off of a tree, mm-hmm. we have this global supply chain and each party says, well, look, I'm just putting a few apples on this giant container ship. It's really very little. And yet we have more pollution than ever coming from all these. And the the alternative is for me, before I got any of this, and I think for many Americans who are used to buying mainly packaged food, then it feels like aren't fresh vegetables more expensive? Doesn't it take longer? Isn't it, doesn't it not taste as good because, you know, people who are really good at cooking aren't putting it together and these big corporations, they're, they're figuring out what's really palatable for us. Hmm. And it seems like a step backward if we've, all of progress has been leading us to this point. And yet when we actually experience it, it took me several months because I learned to cook growing up, but not from scratch, scratch. So I had a, I had a good several months of, of very bland food when I was just steaming <laughs> vegetables. But each time I'd be like, okay, this tastes good with that. That tastes good with this. Then I realized what I'd gotten from it. Eventually my food started tasting good, you know, by my palate. I th- other people seem to like it too, but it's definitely you know, for me. And I made local cuisine hmm. and people talk about, so I'm not flying. So they say, oh, you don't get to explore other cuisines of the world, other cultures of the world, but actually living locally leads me to understand more about how others live locally there, even though I'm not there to where 
visiting there by flying feels to me, and I've done that. And I've been to a couple dozen countries, six continents, but I feel like my experience now is getting me, putting me more in touch with people far away. And the way I used to travel seems more like going to the zoo of just this weird sampling of looking from the outside and not really experiencing it. Now, a lot of people can criticize and say, well, Josh, you've had the experience. Other people haven't. So if people want to engage on me on that, they can contact me. But my personal experience is that I wish I'd changed earlier. And, uh, and getting back to what prompted me on this, and sorry, I, I, I went on longer than I meant to, but this type of conversation, I think of the joys and beauties and discoveries and, and wonder of nature is, happens when we, the more that we embrace it. And there's no end to how much we discover in that, when we keep moving in that direction. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting because in some ways, as I said, like you're, you're actually feeding right into, I'm giving up a, a keynote address at a conference on Thursday on global citizenship. <laughs> and, you know, it's so interesting for me as someone who has always been labeled a globalist, right? Because so much of my approach comes from the fact that I've lived large chunks of my life in Italy and in Europe and, you know, sort of embracing and immersing yourself in another culture definitely changes you. And that kind of dialogue between cultures is so important. But again, and I think we touched on this a little bit before, there's a bit of an existential crisis because what does it mean to be a globalist if the idea, to your point, of traveling you know, well, I will still say I, I find the appeal obvious, you know, the appeal is there. And yet, to your point, some I, I think living in this place, much more so than when I lived in the in the more cosmopolitan and global cities of Rome or New York, it, it's really very much what you are saying that an appreciation of living locally does make you think about people who to go back to your earlier comment, live locally in Bangladesh, right? And so ultimately the world can't be about just kind of flying from place to place and jet setting around. We have to somehow embrace those other perspectives and learn to learn from each other, et cetera. But it can't always involve high emission airplanes. And so you know, you've, you've kind of hit on my big existential crisis, right? Of who, who would I be if I hadn't done this? And yet, because I've done it, and therefore I think differently about my life now, it's causing me to think differently about my future. I'm curious about the, the crisis I don't want to get too much into it, although if you want to, I'm happy to engage. But the the experience that you had with the with the skating, engaging with your with your kids and with the avoiding the cars to the extent you could, what was the emotional experience of it? How did you feel when you were doing any of these things? But going back from when you committed to it and were planning to when it actually happened to when you reflected on it afterward? So I will say when I committed to it at during our last conversation, both of them felt doable to a certain extent. And I will say that every time I have chosen to leave my car in the garage and walk, it has given me a great sense of kind of intrinsic 
happiness or sense of accomplishment. (laughs) So I think that's a very positive thing. Fully admitting that I was not able to do it as much as I would have liked by a long shot. (laughs) And here's the funny thing. I'm a competitive person, (laughs) which is probably why I, in a very ill-advised way, right, was still trying to perfect a ice skating spin (laughs) when I had no business trying to do that. But I am a competitive person. And so there's a big piece of me that just keeps saying, I mean, I'm not going to give up on this. I want to keep trying it because the more you try, the more you'll achieve, even if I may never get to 100%, right, uh, car-free, or even 100%, you know, no meat, et cetera. But I really am committed to continuing to try it. So I'm, I'm here, I'm trying to think of the emotions you felt. It's found, I'm, I'm hearing, I don't know, uh, joy or discovery or elation or enthusiasm. I think I would say satisfaction and a little, a little bit of kind of that happy joy. And if you don't mind my asking, what about the times when you did drive when you maybe didn't have to? Oh, then I felt very frustrated with myself. <laughs> and, you know, again, what's that saying? So, I don't know. You know, people say sometimes you have to repeat something many, many times for people to get the message. Or when you raise kids and you start introducing like those horrible, like mashed baby foods, right? Like sometimes you have to feed your child the string beans 17 times or something, and then they'll start to like it. I do think that like not one of those moments, because, you know, inevitably if I was taking the car, it's because I had a really complicated day where I knew that halfway through I was going to have to Uh, run out of a meeting and drive across town to another meeting, right? So it simply would not have been possible in the very burdensome schedule that I live as a mother and a college president to walk those distances, right? So, but every time I did it, I would think, ah, shoot, (laughs) another opportunity missed. And so I do believe that If you say that to yourself enough, not because you're kind of beating yourself up over it, but because it's like, ah, I missed another opportunity. And that competitive piece in me, I think, will keep saying like, okay, well, maybe little by little, you actually become more strategic or intentional or proactive on how you organize your day and your week, right? So that well, it may never be possible for me to be completely uh, independent of my vehicle here in this moment in time. Maybe there are certain days of the week that I just say, well, there aren't going to be any off-campus reasons why I would need to right, use my car. And then you start, you just start organizing your life differently, which I'm sure is also what you found, right? With your unplugging your refrigerator or committing to not traveling or you're fermenting, like one thing begets another. And then little by little, you're not just doing these things in the moment, right? But you're planning around. And it becomes a lifestyle. Yeah. And I do them. I do each thing the next step because I'm propelled by the thing before that I like. 
I have mm -hmm. to correct something. You said avoiding traveling, but I'm, I'm avoiding flying. I'm still traveling. Mm, sorry. By bike and by train and, and hopefully soon by sailboat to get across the Atlantic. Oh. And so, yeah, I get, I travel as much as ever in terms of my experience of the world. I'm just not doing it by airplane. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, I, you kind of alluded to it, but how would you say looking forward, are you going to continue these or how do they, how, how do you think of it looking forward? I would really like to continue these moving forward. And again, some of my uh, progress may be in small increments, but I appreciate the way you approach this also, because first of all, it's very kind of the, the measure of each person, right? It's not everyone should do A, B, C, and D. But I think to your point, you've kind of hit on this interesting approach where if each person just starts taking an incremental step and getting a sense of satisfaction or joy or whatever that is, you are kind of impelled, uh, compelled to do the next thing. And so because neither one of these is kind of out of the range of possibility. They're, they're, they're attainable. Maybe the, the no meat altogether more so than not the car, but in the kind of in the vein of every bit helps and may inspire other people to do their every little bit. I find it, I'm really intrigued by the idea and I'm excited to keep going. A lot of people hear this and they think, oh, it's so great that you get people to start small and do something. It's not small or big. It's intrinsic versus extrinsic. So the first question I have to ask someone is what the environment means to them so that when they act, if I told someone who grew up by the beach, think of skating in the, in the rural, in rural areas. Think of, you know, we, we might lose that and think of how great that could be. It probably would not resonate with them. So I have to, as I put it, I haven't made this up, but it's you, leadership. You got to start where they are, not where you are, not where you want them to be, not where they should be, not where they could be, but where they are. And that's for most people, that's not studying the science. It's not, for most people, their experience in the environment is less like people in California, probably not many of them have actually had their homes burned down. They probably had smoke, but they probably had much more headlines of telling them how terrible things are. And their actual experience is more like people yelling at them, not mm -hmm. yelling literally. Mm -hmm. So that's not such a great starting place. They, they also have their inside their hearts that it's smushes down their personal experience. And that's where I try to focus at the beginning is each guest is his or her own person with his or her own personal experiences that will motivate them more than billions of people that aren't them, I think. No, I, th I think you're absolutely right. I mean, fundamentally, right? We're all, it's impossible for us not to focus on ourselves, right? I mean, that's how we're built. And so I think to your point, the intrinsic versus extrinsic is really interesting because ultimately the intrinsic leads to, if not extrinsic meanings or actions to all of this, but at the very least external kind of outlets of what you're feeling intrinsically. And, you know, again, to, to circle back, it's like that one or two degrees of separation, right? If you're intrinsically motivated, you will showcase something 
to the external world that they will pick up on. If you showcase something to the external world and others pick up on it, will you come back and share how that went? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And to wrap up, is there anything that from this experience or in general that you would want to share or could share directly with the listeners? No, I just, you know, I really want to say, I mean, it's been such an interesting month in that sense, right? I've, um, I've really enjoyed looking at different recipes, right? And trying to think a little bit bigger about the food that not just me, I mean, I think I'm pretty easy to, to satisfy, but what, what would make sense for a family and how can we approach this? And, you know, with my kids, obviously it's, it's baby steps, right? And it's doing small things, but it's been really interesting. And I think, you know, the one other thing I would say is that back to your point of, you know, looking to the next generation to solve many of these messes that frankly, I think we have to own. We've created a lot of them. We have to do whatever we can. And, you know, as, as a parent who thinks a lot, often at three o'clock in the morning when I can't sleep about the mess on so many levels that my kids will step into that, you know, we have the luxury. It's not that there weren't problems. There were obviously, but we had the lug. I had the luxury of growing up without these really heavy issues that I knew I was stepping into. And so I think you're absolutely right that we are the ones with, you know, more power to make big picture changes as now, as opposed to waiting for the next generation. But again, in the moments when I get kind of panicked of, oh, what a mess we've left them doing even small things intrinsically at least gives me a sense of, okay, we all are going to keep doing the little things that we should be doing and that we want to be doing. And eventually the little things will kind of shift uh, the tide, one can hope. Hillary Link, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.